Well, it is good to, uh, good to be with you again this morning. Uh, George is out uh, on spring break, so I'm going uh, solo today. Uh, I want to start with just a couple of uh, reminders. There's a lot at this point. I think we're in our sixth class. So there's a lot of content that we could uh, review. Just a couple of reminders from past classes that will be particularly relevant today. Uh, the first is this idea that we touched on a few weeks ago uh, that rules are often attempted solutions to problems, <clears throat> but sometimes they unintentionally maintain those problems or create new problems. And then uh, just uh, last week, I shared this idea from Beth Moore from her book, Breaking Free. Our purpose is not to drag old skeletons out of the closet or engage in family bashing. We just need to make sure we didn't inherit any hand-me-down chains that interfere with the priceless benefits of our covenant relationship with Christ. And we considered this idea last week <clears throat> alongside George's <clears throat> very helpful framing of Jesus' treatment of rules in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll say, if you weren't here last week, uh, I checked this morning. That recording is posted on the website with the other class recordings, so it's week five. And George just did a really <clears throat> a stellar job taking us through those refrains in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard, but I say, <clears throat> and just, you know, I, I sort of sat as a student and listened to him talk about that. And <clears throat> some of what I was hearing him say, along with some of the comments that were made uh, by some of you during that conversation, um, <clears throat> really highlighted this idea that it, it might be helpful to pause and think about the context and the motivation of those that came before and made the rules. That, that you know, we said last week, the, the, even the Pharisees were humans, right? They, they were not some sort of cartoon villains. They were real people. Uh, they had very real purpose and reason for what they did <clears throat> and for the rules that they put in place. Um, now that resulted, again, in some, some problems that came out of their attempt uh, to solve one set of problems, created new problems, obviously. Uh, but uh, that, that understanding that people had a context that they were often... Um, they, they were often influenced by and responding to that context doing the, in, in, the, in the best way that they could figure out how to do it at the time that they were doing it. And so I want to go back and pick up with that uh, idea this week. My son and I love the Rocky and Creed movies. And we have made a tradition, uh, you know, he wasn't alive and around to go to the Rocky movies in theaters with me. But we've made a tradition of going to the opening weekend of all three Creed films. If you're not familiar with Creed, this is the continuation 
of the story of Rocky Balboa. There are six Rocky films, and now, as of a couple of weeks ago, three Creed films, so nine films at all. And he and I just really enjoy those. And we have taken a picture uh, each time that we've gone. This is a picture that we took in front of the poster for Creed 1. This is a picture that we took in front of the poster for Creed 2. Now I want you to notice a pattern that's developing. This is a picture that we took last week. <laughs> last week in front of the poster for Creed 3. I showed this to, he's a student, he's actually in one of George's classes this semester. He's one of George's students. And I showed that to George last week and he said, were, uh, like, were you kneeling down or was he standing on something? And I said, no. Not only that, but I was in boots, and this was still the outcome of, uh, of, that, of that photo. So uh, somebody else said, well, you look pretty much the same, right? Like uh, trying to compliment me, and I said, it's only seven years, right? <laughs> it's, I wouldn't expect to have changed that much. It's only seven years, but for, for one of us, it was seven dog years, right? A, a lot of... A lot of growth uh, for, for one of us, more so than, than for the other of us. Um, uh, he's, he's now a, a freshman in college. Um, but in this film, Creed III, uh, Jonathan Majors plays a character named Damian Anderson, who is the, you know, he's the antagonist. Uh, for Creed, or in a boxing movie, you might say, The Heel. <laughs> and uh, Sam and I were talking about it after the movie, and Sam said, I think of all the Rocky and Creed movies, you know, all nine movies at this point, I think he's the best antagonist of all of the films. And I, I agree. I, he does a phenomenal job uh, in this movie. Uh, playing uh, the the opponent to uh, to Adonis Creed, um, and then I was I was thinking about that idea of of antagonists or you know uh, in I, I think villain would be too strong of a word for his character, but in general when you think about movies, many of them feature some sort of villain, right, and. Uh, course you can go on the internet and google top 10 movie villains of all time and people are debating that and they're talking about who would go on their list uh, there's videos on YouTube right where people talk and debate about this uh, I'm curious from the from the group here right when you think of just really great villains you know effective villains who comes to mind Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman plays a great villain, right? Uh, I, I was thought when when Robin Hood came out, uh, the the Kevin Costner Robin Hood, um, a friend of mine said um, that he was pulling for Alan Rickman the whole movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I forgot the character's name, but the guy from The Shining. 
Oh yeah, Jack yeah. Jack Nicholson's character from what The Shining. Uh, what was his name? Jack. Was Jack. it Johnny? Johnny. 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 Right. Johnny. Yeah, that's the line, right? Yeah. Here's Johnny. Here's Johnny. That's right. Yeah. Okay. What other villains? Darth Vader. Darth Vader. <laughs> Gotta be up there, right? Iconic. Absolutely. Any Disney villain. Yeah. Disney is really. There's a whole. Those of you who are Disney folks, there's a whole merchandise line, right? A whole kind of uh, subculture of Disney characters that, that people that really love the villains. I can't think of the name of the actor yeah. or the character. Any others that come to mind? Yeah, so I, I mean, this is one that a lot of people think of, right? And if you go to those lists online, you know, you see Darth Vader and others named that you would expect. And this is one that you see over and over and over again. Heath Ledger's turn as the Joker haunting, right? Yeah, just, just a really, uh, quite a performance. Yeah. Christopher Walken always seems Yes, he can play... That little bit off-kilter villain, too, right? Yeah, you're never quite sure what this guy is capable of doing. Yeah, very good. Yeah, well, I was about to say, somebody's really feeling secure. You're just saying his name out loud. Just saying it right out there. Yeah, Voldemort from the, from the Harry Potter series. Sure, yeah. So when you think about these villains, right, I, you know, there's a lot that probably goes into what makes them good villains. But all, of, all the villains that you're naming, they're, they're compelling for, for some reason, right? And not necessarily that we, we feel, we don't feel positively toward them, but we have strong feelings toward them and about them. And they, they compel those strong feelings in us. Well, so Darth Vader was mentioned. Um, so I, I've got to tell a, a, another story on, on Sam, uh, who, who you saw here a minute ago in those photos. Uh, when he and his sister were younger, uh, I, have a, I have a daughter that's uh, senior uh, in college and then a son who's a freshman in college. When they were very young, shortly after we moved into the house that we still live in, uh, we decided to do some work in that house. It has this kind of open floor plan, but there were all these different types of flooring, right? You walked in and there was one type of flooring in the entryway. Uh, there was carpet to one side. There was linoleum in the kitchen. There, a different kind of carpet over here in the living room. And one of the things we wanted to do was eventually, you know, replace all of that with, with one kind of flooring. And uh, now you, this, you talk about family rules. I have a rule against paying someone to do something that I think I might be able to do myself, right? Uh, and if you hear me hedging my bet on that, I think I might be able to. Right? Not necessarily I am able to, right? Uh, but 
uh, we, I, I felt confident in my ability to at least do all the removal work, right? Uh, I did pay someone to do installation, but to, do, to remove all the different types of floors, everything, I can do that. And so uh, I set out to do that, and if, you, if you've ever done that kind of work, you know that it's, it can be really uh, dangerous for little kids, little feet running around, right? You've got tacks that you're pulling up, you've got splinters coming up off the subfloor, you know, you just don't want kids running around when you're doing that kind of dirty, dusty uh, work. And so, uh, unfortunately, it was, it was not good weather outside the day I was tackling this project. And I thought, you know, what would a, a good parent do? Put them in front of the TV, right? And so I, I cut a piece of carpet that I left kind of in the middle of the living room and sort of set the sofa on that piece of carpet. And I'm working all around here. And I'm going to put these two kids here, but I need something that's going to hold their attention. You know, Dora the Explorer for the 18th time isn't going to work, right? I need something that they've not seen before. And it occurred to me, my kids haven't seen Star Wars movies yet. And so I put on episode one of Star Wars, and it worked like a charm. I mean, it just held their attention. They didn't move. And I got so much work done around them. And then when it's over, they immediately start asking to see the next one. And I gave a long speech about how I saw them in theaters, and you had to wait you know, three, four, five years between. And then I was done talking and they said, yeah, but we want to see the next one, right? Uh, they, they weren't too interested in my childhood hardships of having to wait for George Lucas to make each film. Uh, I saw the first one at uh, Hickory Hollow. Uh, what, Star, what we called Star Wars at the time, right? Now it's episode four, A New Hope. I remember seeing that at Hickory Hollow and then waiting forever for Empire Strikes Back to come out. But that started a, uh, kind of over the next few weeks, we watched most of the Star Wars movies that existed at that time. And there were six at that time, the three prequels and then the three originals. We fast forwarded through a few parts uh, uh, here and there, but for the most part, we watched most of them. And... Both of my kids just really, that next Christmas was sort of a Star Wars Christmas, you know. They were just really all into it, but especially Sam. And the first kind of big thing he wanted, that first Christmas after they had seen those movies, was a Jedi outfit, which I was fine with. Because Jedis are good guys. And then things started to take some turn. And he asked for a red lightsaber. Now, if you know anything about Star Wars, the bad guys, the Sith, use red lightsabers. And, and now I have concerns about him. You know. What's going on with this kid that he wants a red lightsaber? And then he went an another sort of degree out 
and he wanted a Darth Vader costume at the at the Halloween that came after that. <coughs> and, and I'm disturbed. I'm concerned about this this kid that 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 I've been put in charge of here on this earth, you know, to raise right. And he wants to dress up like a villain. He wants to dress up like Darth Vader. When I was a kid, I didn't want to dress up like Darth Vader. You know, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. I wanted to be Han Solo. I didn't want to be Darth Vader. I didn't have any friends that I knew that wanted to be Darth Vader. And yet, here's this kid, seemingly a good kid, wanting to be Darth Vader. Right? One of the top villains of all time. So, my question for you, right? he seems like he's turned out okay. I probably didn't mean to be too concerned. In fact, I think there's probably a pretty good explanation for why he and I had such different responses to this character. I mean, what, what would you think? What, as you consider kind of my childhood response and his, why, why was I so against this guy and Sam is so kind of drawn to him? Yeah. Because he started with episode one. Yeah. Not to see Anakin before, as a human being. I think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, um, when I, when I looked at Darth Vader as a kid, this is who I saw, right? And when he looks at Darth Vader, right, this is who he sees. Only one of us got to see the end, at least what we thought was the end, right, until they made more movies. But only one of us got to see the end with a fuller appreciation of the beginning. Another way of saying it, I, I, I was talking to some students about this one, and a student said, yeah, the prequels change your perception. I said, that, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. The prequels change your perception. There's something about knowing the context of a character, right, that changes our perception of that character. He, he is, Darth Vader is this, and he is this, right? He is uh, all of these sorts of iterations of himself through his development over time. So again, back to this idea, right? Our purpose is not to drag old skeletons out of the closet or engage in family or church bashing of any kind. We want to make sure we didn't inherit any hand-me-down chains that interfere with the priceless benefits of our covenant relationship with Christ. It's interesting, you know, even Christ had an interesting family. Uh, there's there's a prostitute on this family tree. Uh, there's a king on this family tree, Manasseh, who did really evil things. 
there's there's good and there's bad and there's ugly all here uh, just as that's true in, in all of our family lines that was true for Christ himself right what do we do with that right what do we do with not it's not just the good right but what do we do in particular with the problematic in our family line uh, one perspective that I find helpful comes from uh, what's known as contextual family therapy. Contextual family therapy, um, I shared a little bit about Murray Bowen uh, early this semester, who was an important framer in family therapy. Uh, he had um, a contemporary uh, named Naj who is credited with creating this approach to therapy called the contextual approach. Now, Naj spells his name, if you want to look him up and read more about it, spells his name N-A-G-Y. And I grew up with two boys who spelled their name N-A-G-Y, and we said Nagy. We didn't say Naj. Uh, where I grew up, I was Nagy. But Naj... He created this approach, like I said, that's become known as contextual family therapy. And his approach places great emphasis on trying to see the intent and trying to understand the intergenerational issues behind the behavior of members of previous generations. Right? Where were they coming from and another way of saying that, I think, if, I, if I'm sort of summarizing that perspective in my own words, is that part of understanding the rules we inherit is understanding the context of the rule makers. Right? Part of understanding the rules we inherit is understanding the context of the rule makers. I want to show you four elements of Naj's approach, the, the way he attempts to do this, right? But first, let me stop. Questions or comments about anything we've said so far? Okay, well, let me show you this process and, and ask you to think about how it might be helpful uh, to you. The process starts from a place of empathy. We, 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 we need to start from a place of wanting to understand. Right? Not necessarily from a place of wanting to show ourselves right and show others wrong. Right? But a place of really, really seeking, right? desiring, to understand where another person or persons, where they're coming from, right? So it's got to start with empathy. If it doesn't start with empathy, the other three things on here don't really matter that much, right? The other three things that we're going to walk through need to be approached from this place of a desire to increase my empathy. Okay, so... If I'm working from 
the pursuit of empathy. Part of taking a contextual perspective is what Naj called crediting. Crediting is where we, we sort of go through this cognitive exercise of separating the perceptions of someone's acts from the motivations behind their acts. Right? That I have, uh, that it's, it's quite possible, put this in a family context for a minute. Those of you who have siblings, you ever had a conversation with your siblings about something that an older family member did? And your perception of that is radically different from your siblings. It's like, it's like you were in two different places, right? remembering two different people. Realities can be sometimes a, a, a kind of a multiverse, right? Because it, it just doesn't seem possible that both of you were there in the same place with the same person, the way you describe such different experiences. You have a, a, a perception of that. And your sibling has a perception of that, and those perceptions may not match, right? What are my perceptions of what was done? And is it possible that the motivations behind what was done are different than what I perceive? Okay, That's the crediting piece. He also talked about the importance of what he called acknowledgement, which is there is outcome, but there's also effort, right? And even if the outcomes are sometimes problematic, can I acknowledge, can I recognize the effort that was put into the relationship by this person? even if the outcome wasn't necessarily something that I perceived as being helpful or, or positive. And then this last piece, I think is so important because if we just talk about these three things, empathy, crediting, and, crediting, and acknowledgement, and we don't talk about accountability, sometimes it would, could sound as if you're just talking about letting people off the hook for the consequences of their action. This, this uh, reminder of accountability is people are still responsible for the actions that they took. And at times, they may still need to be held accountable for those actions, even if their motivations were better than I might assume and even if genuine effort was going into the process, th this is sort of, there's this pairing in our culture, forgive and forget, right? Which, I hesitate to say this without George here, but I don't believe that appears anywhere in Scripture. Um, it's outside my field. I'm not a linguistics person or a literature person, but... Some people will tell us it first appeared in Don Quixote. I'm not sure if that's, that's true or not. Right? But there's an element of forgiveness here, but there's not an element of forgetting 
We don't want to forget. Part, the point of, the, uh, of, of our discussions this semester are let's look back and see what we may have inherited that's problematic that we want to challenge, that we want to change. And just forgetting, it keeps us from being able to engage in that. So the accountability piece is an important piece set beside these other parts. Empathy, crediting, acknowledgement, and accountability. Thoughts? Yeah. Well, it reminds me of something that's been said by one of our current philosophers. My name is Ted Lasso. Yes. <laughs> he took it from Walt Whitman, I think, right? Be curious, not judgmental. Curious, not judgmental. Isn't, I mean, is that akin to what he's yeah. saying here in the contextual yeah, uh, I, I think that's, I love that scene, by the way. And um, uh, to me, that's a great example of coming at something from an empathetic perspective, right? Uh, accountability, I think, uh, has an element of judgment to it. I have to, at some point, make a judgment uh, as to whether this was acceptable, not acceptable, right, problematic, productive, but that judgment is coming through a process of being curious and trying to understand, so it's, it's an ending point, not a starting. Yeah, great reminder. Well, you know, when somebody hurts you, yeah. and then you read It's very challenging. It's very challenging, right? Um, although it's interesting that you bring up the uh, example of, of Peter, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm starting to wade into uh, theological waters here, but uh, were there still consequences for Peter? You know, were there consequences, for example, of him denying? Jesus, right? Uh, I would say yes. Right? That forgiveness and accountability aren't mutual. They can occupy the same space. Mm -hmm. Yeah? So, yeah. and many therapists would say something like this. Yeah. Like, it's true. You know, forgiving someone doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Didn't happen, right. Doesn't, doesn't mean that it didn't matter. Right. Didn't mean that it didn't hurt you. What forgiveness means is that you're no longer going to expect them to pay the debt. Mm. You're no longer going to expect them to somehow make it right. Mm. That's mm. right. But yeah. forgiveness has lots of different connotations right. and meanings. Some of it based on our history or religious history or whatever. But that's, in my opinion, that's That's helpful. I do think it's very helpful sometimes to. to deconstruct things from the side of what something isn't, 
because we do often have a lot of assumptions about a concept that aren't necessary. Uh, they're, they're not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And for those who don't know the history of Marshall Keeble, prominent uh, African American preacher in Churches of Christ, yes, especially in this part of the country. Yes, sir. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that example because it brings the it brings it from just a family experience also to a church experience. You know that that's we can have those same kinds of uh, differences in perceptions uh, among people that we grew up in the, in the same congregation with, or, or certainly the same heritage. Right? If, if you take sort of the Church of Christ heritage. Uh, yeah. 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 And that was hurtful to you. And I, I've heard you talk about it in other contexts. I know it was hurtful to you. Right. But she she was able to perceive a benefit in that that you didn't automatically recognize. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, even, yeah. I'll even go one more ripple of the stone in the pond out from yeah. that because I know Marshall Keeble's writings have influenced people well beyond that one community mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, after he passed. Mm -hmm. like he, his, yeah. his, uh, his books have still, you know, they, they influence people today of all walks of life. Right. 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 So, yeah, you you can see that there was maybe some some compromise in, in his life, but his impact is outsized. Yes. And we, and yes. so when you take a process like this and you apply it to maybe a, a person of significance in your, like this in your church heritage, or just to general sort of uh, experiences you've had in your church heritage, 
you can come to different conclusions right, than you might have uh, automatically come to on your own. Uh, and, I, you know, growing up in Churches of Christ, uh, some of you probably have had a similar experience where you, you've had, um, you know, these conversations with others who share that same heritage and uh, where you see something positive, they see something painful or vice versa. Right? Um, I've been in so many of those conversations. And... Um, the conclusion I've come to is I can't leave my heritage uh, if for no other reason than just the jokes. <laughs> I, can't, I can't go to some community church and make jokes about churches of Christ that they're not going to get, right? I've got I've to stay for the jokes if for no other reason. Uh, I'm, I'm, only, I'm half kidding about that, right? No, I, I, I've had to go through a process like this to sort of say where... Where is the value in this heritage that I don't that I don't want to um, uh, deny, right, or or walk away from? Where where can I find the value? Um, other other thoughts on this. This is really helpful. Uh, yeah. Back to reconciling the idea of accountability. <coughs> yes. The other cheek. Right. Um, it made me think like. I'm, this is like a half-cocked thought, so I'm curious what the mm-hmm. response is. Is, that, is it sort of like trusting in the power of natural consequences? Hmm. Like, I don't need to enforce a consequence on you. I'm going to trust that, that you will experience the natural consequences of the harm you've uh, At the core of your question, I think there's something about what, I, what do I have control over and what do I not have control over, right? And am I... Am I are there times where I'm trying to force consequences that are really outside of my ability to enforce? And if that's the case, can I let go of those? Right? And, um, and, you know, it's the serenity prayer, right? Can I, I do the part of this that's mine to do and then let go of the part that's beyond my control? Well, when I think about Gandhi's applications of but his application of nonviolence, right. Luther King also right. followed everything, right. which was, if I allow you to harm me over and over again, you will eventually feel the brutality mm-hmm. of your actions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that I don't need to, I don't need to do anything yeah. to you for being yeah. brutal to me. That you will, that if I just allow you to be, do what you're doing, you yeah. will experience the consequences. And that could be an example of what we're talking about. I, I would want to think more about that. Uh, you know, think a little deeper about it, but. That very well could be an example of sort of knowing what do I control and what do I not control, right? I, do I have the control to make you feel a thing, right? Or do I have to leave that up to something larger than myself? Yeah. Um, you know, the book by Walter Winsberg, he explores the Sermon on the Mount as um, a subversive radical teaching. Yes. And the way he interprets Turn the Other Cheek is um, that's that is a, in willfully giving away the power, I mm. still retain the power. Mm, interesting. Um, so it's more like, go yeah. ahead. You, oh, you have that one? Oh, go ahead. Do that. <clears throat> um, carry, carry the pack an extra mile is, okay, you, you can't, I, you're not making me do this. I'm choosing to do this. 
Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. and even in, in the example of Christ, he he was sacrificial. He did take um, this abuse, but he chose this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, in, in these contexts, uh, I, I feel like sometimes turn the other cheek just means um, the way we teach it is just take the abuse, just take it. Right. Right. Without the accountability piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that is the core of the question. Well, if George were here, he'd say the Bible doesn't say what it's mean what it says, it means what it means, right? And then not what he said last week. Yeah. Let let me show you something to to kind of I, I'd like to give you an example to leave with and then we can we can pick up next week. But sometimes Beautiful examples come from unlikely sources. I tell my students all the time, I am going to ruin entertainment for you. I, I am going to teach you these concepts, and then you're going to start seeing them in the most unlikely places. Right? I saw this in the most unlikely place you could imagine, reality television. <coughs> there was a show a couple of years ago called Better Late Than Never. Here's the premise. Take four guys that are very different from each other, very set in their ways, and send them on vacation. Terry Bradshaw, four-time Super Bowl winner. George Foreman, two-time heavyweight champion of the world. Henry Winkler, the Fonz, right? William Shatner, Captain Kirk. We're going to take these guys, we're going to put them in fish-out-of-water situations, right? In the second season of that show, they visit homelands. And things sometimes take a more thoughtful, introspective turn. I just want to show you a brief piece. This is from a trip to Berlin, where Henry Winkler's family barely escaped the Holocaust. In fact, his uncle didn't make it out. His mother and father uh, did. And uh, hopefully I can uh, get this to cooperate. Um, Helmut Theodore Winkler, that was my uncle I never met. He was born in 1909. He left for Holland. Guys, come quick, come quick. You're not going to believe this. Helmut Theodore Winkler is my father's brother I never met. And he was deported in 1942 to Auschwitz. Oh, and he no. died the 31st of January. 1942. This is your uncle? Yeah, at Auschwitz. Your father's brother? Yeah, my father's brother. I never met him. I only heard about him. But look. Look. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, do my God. It's from my children. You want me to read it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dear Daddy, the touchstone honors your uncle Helmut. He lived and worked here until perishing in the Holocaust. Your father Harry also worked here and lived next door. 
but a different path led him to New York City, where he started our family. Even though the Winkler history in Berlin is heartbreaking, we thought it was important for you to connect with the past through this hopefully fun adventure and connect, you did. Yeah. No other landmark represents Berlin like the wall, leaving your mark symbolized that the Winkler family is still thinking, and as a matter of fact, we're back in town. Yeah. At the Bradenburg Gate, yeah. another representation of separation and intolerance. You literally connected with a stranger, showing that love conquers all, and that Berliners have a strange affinity for bears. For bears. You just shared the stage with the comedian Harmonist, a new iteration of a group that has been entertaining Germans for decades. In fact, your parents and grandparents adored them. They have touched generations with their talent, as you have with yours. We know that you have a lot of mixed feelings about your upbringing and your parents were harsh, but hopefully being here, seeing, touching, and feeling pieces of their lives can give you a clearer perspective of who they were. We're aware that when it comes to them, you've built a, a wall around your heart. Well, maybe this trip can open the door and then tearing it down uh, in the Berlin down tradition. That wall. Yeah. The true Berlin tradition. Love <laughs> you, Daddy, Jed, Zoe, and Max. There you are, bub. Oh, okay. Wow. Oh, wow. Thank you. Huh? Thank you. How beautiful is that, huh? You all help me, huh? Oh, okay. I don't think Henry really knew what we. Okay, so um, I know that we're we're pretty much out of time, but if you if you couldn't catch the the piece I want you to hear, we know you have a lot of mixed feelings about your upbringing. Your parents were harsh, but hopefully, being here, seeing, touching, and feeling pieces of their lives can give you a clearer perspective of who they were. Context, right? We're aware that when it comes to them, you've built a wall around your heart. Well, maybe this trip can open the door to tearing down that wall in true Berlin tradition. Knowing the context of the rule makers is part of what it takes to better understand the process that underlies the content of the rules, which we've talked about uh, this semester. So. Uh, I've kept you a little longer than I should have. My apologies. I will we'll be back together next week. Thank you for your patience.